I'm not a, you know, sort of run to the hills fundamentalist who's telling every Christian they need to, you know, they need to get out immediately. And, you know, if they're not, they're in sin. That's not, that's not the point of this at all. The real point is we need a lot more Christians building institutions and practicing civic leadership, practicing what it looks like to create a legacy that they can hand off. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding, where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us. I'm your tour guide, Joseph Backholm. So glad that you are with us today. In every episode, we endeavor to do a slightly better job today than we did yesterday at taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And today, we're going to try to think Christianly about whether we should all move to the hollers of Kentucky and escape the crazy. And I'm only slightly kidding. Now, because we all have been observing the crazy around us, and probably all of us have at least daydreamed, if not actually discussed, buying a big piece of property away from the pronoun mandates and child drag queen shows, where all the neighbors share your values, the children run through fields of wildflowers, while our clothes dry in the sun, the smell of fresh sourdough in the air. Well, if that's your dream, my guest today is trying to make this dream a reality, kind of. Josh Abatoy is many things. He's a private equity lawyer. He's the executive director of American Reformer. He's also the managing director of New Founding, where he's involved in real estate developments designed to help people find affinity communities. At least that's my description. He's going to get a chance to correct me in a moment. Uh, the, The kind of affinity community that you might be daydreaming about. He also, really importantly, is the winner of the Toilet Bowl in our fantasy leagues last season, which is the playoffs for losers. So, Josh, this is the first time I've gotten to publicly congratulate you for that. And he joins me now. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, it's great to be here, I think. I I, uh, I didn't realize I was walking into an ambush here. Uh, wow. Um, well... I mean, the fact is, by virtue of being the winner of the toilet bowl, you did much better than me this season. So I omitted that initially because I was trying to take a shot. But uh, the truth is, um, you outperformed me significantly. But uh, we're going to talk about more important things. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to talk about more important things today. Um, And before we get into kind of your ventures, just uh, tell our audience a bit more about kind of your background and how you kind of became a guy who's buying real estate, trying to find a better life for people. Totally. Well, yeah, what I'm doing is a little bit autobiographically informed. I'll admit that right off the bat. Um, I, you know, like a lot of uh, young Christian men, my generation, I had the, you know, the opportunity to um, have a pretty successful career um, before I sort of went out um, on my own and joined a sort of a smaller group of Christian investors here at New Founding. But, you know, I went to Harvard Law School. I practiced private equity, uh, mergers and acquisitions law at Kirkland and Ellis for a number of years. I worked uh, in-house uh, for a portfolio company of J.P. Morgan's Infrastructure Investment Fund. And, um, you know, so I so I did that route, you know, I lived in suburban uh, Houston in a a very nice suburb and uh, in many respects had a had a very great life, Um, you know, had had good coworkers, meaningful work and all of that. Um, And, uh, 
you know, but but some things sort of uh, pushed me to what I'm doing now, which is investing in a, a lot of different areas that are going to enable uh, for the future uh, Christians to be much more resilient and anti-fragile as our culture changes. And so, you know, I, I'll highlight a couple points. Um, you know, 2020 was a watershed year for a lot of people, and a number of things happened that really seismically changed how people thought about where they live and work. Uh, the first thing is COVID happened. Uh, COVID did a lot of things. First of all, COVID made people realize, actually, you know, your local government really matters. Um, you know, your your experience of life day to day changed drastically. If you were in a major city, um, you were wearing masks, your favorite restaurants were closed, human society basically shut down where you, you know, in a lot of major cities. And if during that time, if you went out to a small town in the country, um, it was a very powerful and evocative thing. I mean, it, you know, when you when you would go to um, a small piggly wiggly in a small country town or the local diner and people were still kind of continuing life. And you know that that was very powerful. Yeah. A lot of people got a taste of that during covid and they haven't forgotten. The other thing that happened during covid is, of course, the remote work explosion. Um, you know, it, most of the laptop class was working from home during the pandemic. Some of them have returned, but the cat's out of the bag. Uh, nobody's, you know, around the country, commercial space, downtown office space is sitting half vacant. And even with some sort of modest return to work attempts by big firms, uh, they haven't gotten close to the attendance and 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 all of the usage that they saw before the pandemic started. Why not? A lot more people are staying on what you might call flex arrangements, where they're going into the office one or two days a week. And a lot of people just never return to the office, and they won't. Um, it, you know, remote work is not for everybody, but for somebody who's already received their training, it's a lot more feasible, especially if they operate in a clearly defined role in a large organization, a lot of those people prefer working remotely. You know, a lot of uh, coders, um, you know, mid-level uh, corporate uh, roles, you know, these people, they have very clearly defined roles. And once you know how to do your job, it's really quite easy to do it from anywhere. And so, so you had COVID. Um, and then, of course, alongside COVID, you had, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, you had spikes in crime uh, during that time period. You had the um, a lot of unrest in a lot of our major cities during that time period. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned the pronoun brigades. Something that's been happening is a lot more people are attuned to, um, you know, in, in certain blue states, the governments are wanting to facilitate what you might call mass social experiments, whether it's through the schools or through social workers or anything else. And there's a very, I think, realistic and prudent concern that a lot of Christians have about the state government that they sit under. Um, you know, if you're in California, we see these tragic stories that pop up every once in a while. But, you know, if you're in California, the state can and sometimes will take your kid without your consent and uh, submit them to uh, what I would say are cruel sexual experiments. Um, and you know, that that's not happening all the time. It's not happening to every Christian family in California by any means, but it's a risk. And it's something that I think, you know, Christian parents increasingly need to take seriously. So what I would say is on the one side of the ledger, 
you've got all of this, um, all of these push factors that are kind of starting to unite, uh, that are pushing specifically uh, Christians who are in urban areas to think about relocating. Um, and this is sort of, that's political stuff, but, you know, even aside from the political stuff, there's just the values components, right? We all know that, that um, you know, cities are places that have overwhelmingly progressive values and, and um, you know, and so, so merely for things like raising your children and, and such, um, you know, the, the, um, it can be a challenge, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're fighting different values. Uh, the moment you leave your front door of your house, um, all day, you know, in the, in the way that wherever you comport yourself in the public, um, in these deeply progressive areas and some, some individuals may be particularly called to that, but other people are going to say these conditions are, make it too difficult for me to do, you know, care for my primary mission field, which is my family and my, my kids. Um, you know, that's for every, if, if, if you're a Christian and a parent, your primary mission field is your kids. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's all bubbling up in the background and that's why people are moving. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll pause there for, for reactions. I've got a lot more to say though. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're going to keep digging into this, but the sort that you described that happened, you know, I don't know if it started in COVID, but it seems to have accelerated where you have kind of this blue state world and then these red state worlds and people are just voting with their feet to find out which world they want to be in. But that's at a pretty, when you're talking about a state level, I mean, there's a lot of variance within every single state, right? Even red states have blue areas and blue states have red areas. But you're talking about something that's much smaller and presumably um, the, the vision of this is something that's more controlled where you are doing things intentionally to um, make it likely that the people very close to you are, are share your values and, and, are, and are like you. Yeah. Is that actually something that's achievable? Yeah, I was painting sort of the picture of the demand side, right? The fact that I'll put numbers to it. Studies say that about 20 million Americans got the idea during the pandemic to move to a small town or a rural area during COVID in the last four years. About, about five or six million have already moved and about 20 still want to move. Now, the, there's various reasons why they don't move right away. Currently, it's just because interest rates are high, right? Because if you own a house in California with a two and a half percent interest rate, and then you're looking at buying a house, you know, now at a 7% interest rate, that's a hard, that's a hard bargain. So interest rates are sort of, um, they're, they're creating some pent up demand, but people got this idea about moving and we're still seeing it even in the interest rate environment that we have right now, we're still seeing major movement. But so we know there's a lot of people that have moved already, still a lot more who, who still want to move. Okay. How are they moving? You know, where are they choosing to go? What we saw during the pandemic was actually a lot of people essentially dropping their fingers somewhere random on a map. Um, you know, they, they would go and visit, you know, Tennessee. They would do some Internet research. They would visit Florida. They would visit Idaho, uh, Texas. And, you know, they would they would just do some Internet research, go visit a couple times and then just sort of pick a place. Right. And so many, you know, millions of people moved without being drawn to any particular thing. And they could have really moved anywhere. 
And so they just decided to, you know, move to whatever, you know, fill in the blank Dallas suburb or fill in the blank Nashville suburb. Okay, so so what what our project is doing is trying to actually like intentionally market to this group of people and say, here's a great place you can come. You can go anywhere. Here's a good place to come. And yes, I mean, what what does what what results from that? Um, so you're going to get people you know, on average, who share um, social, you know, sort of basic social values that allows them to be good neighbors to each other and allows them to, uh, you know, like their community. Um, I want to ask you a question about that, Josh. How how do you ensure that? You can't like put this stuff in the CCNRs, uh, can yeah. you? I mean, how, how, I mean, you're just thinking the people who are going to move here are very likely to adopt yeah. this value, but you're not doing things officially to help make that true. No, no I mean, no, 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 not at all. I mean, like there's no utopias, right? I mean, you're never going to, you're never going to find a place where everybody agrees with you on everything. Like, I mean, unless you, unless you just go in with, you know, five friends with a private club to build a compound, generally speaking, like you're in a, you know, you're in a community and that means it's a little messy and there's, you know, you're, you're going to have some variety of like what drives people to live in that community. And, you know, generally speaking, like there's not, it's impossible and not desirable to try to like gatekeep, you know, a community. But what you can do is you can, you can put out really positive messaging and, and that's going to generally attract like um, people with, you know, in our case, um, we think it's, it, not everybody will be Christian, but but general, you know, it's going to, on average, tend to attract people with Christian values and politically conservative values who want to live out in a beautiful part of the country. And I think crucially, they want to be part of a project that's blessing a small American town. They they want they want to reconnect with an older American way of life where you've got a small town where everybody knows each other. You don't have to lock your doors. Um, you know, you can have, uh, you know, a little farmstead going on. They, they just, they want that. Did you grow up in a small town? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Did Did you? you? I did. Yeah. I mean, relatively speaking, and it's, it's, it's a small town that has, um, you know, since the 1980s, when the Environmental Protection Agency decided that spotted owls deserved all the land in Western Washington, and it was a it was used to be a logging town, and now there's no industry, and so it has it, it really struggles economically because of, I mean, ironically, I suppose for this conversation, uh, regulation. But what I've also witnessed out there, there's this little town on the coast of Washington called Seabrook, and 15 years ago, and I remember it well. I mean, it was just nothing. It was it was just logging land. And then this guy came in and bought a couple thousand of the acres. And now there's this amazing kind of idyllic coastal community where people from Seattle drive their BMWs to the town I grew up in to go out to their, you know, their cabin for the weekend. And it's all mostly second homes. But I have seen this thing materialize like out of nothing, this entire community props up with stores and restaurants and schools and beautiful communities. And it happens in, you know, a handful of years. So I've I've seen it happen, but the idea that then that happens, not just around second homes and vacations, but it's like, uh, you know, we're looking for a common way of life is very interesting. 
Well, and and I'm glad I'm really, really glad you brought those examples up. Um, it gets another element on the table that we need to talk about, which is a lot of small town America has suffered from brain drain and economic destruction for 50 or 60 years, certainly in Appalachia. Uh, Appalachia is probably a lot like some of these logging towns uh, in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and, and so this we're at this unique and I think time-limited point in history where we've got an opportunity to revitalize these like really beautiful American cities um, that they're they're also like they have a beautiful culture, right? I mean, they, there's a lot of tradition that's maintained. They haven't been disrupted by, um, you know, a lot of people movement and that sort of thing. Like in in Dallas or Houston or you know Washington D.C. or what have you, these are all major cities where people come and go for a couple of years and all of this, and they all feel about the same, right? They're hom they're homogenous in the sense that. Um, they've lost any sort of regional distinctiveness. Well, you know, small town in, in Appalachia or the Pacific Northwest has regional distinctiveness. It has a character. It's kind of got this connection to a 200-year culture in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we, we're in this position where the fact that the small town has that is really, really appealing mm -hmm. to someone who's used to living in fill-in-the-blank generic suburb. Yeah. Um and when they make that move, they have to do it in a way where they don't destroy that particularity, but they kind of honor yeah. and maintain it and help to yeah. perpetuate I, it. I want to ask you a question about that because you mentioned previously in kind of the, the COVID migrations that took place, how people would essentially just put their finger on a map and just say, well, that looks like a fun place. Why don't I move there? And it's interesting to me that huge numbers of Americans would be willing to do that. Does that speak to just a general lack of attachment? Because when you move your life, I mean, there's a lot going on there other than, hey, you know, I want a better climate or a slightly cheaper cost of living. I mean, presumably there are relationships and histories that are being uprooted and all that. Does the ease with which people are making those decisions or is that further evidence that people just don't necessarily have those attachments that we once had? And is this kind of like pursuit for Americana, a thing that was maybe small town life, a desire to get back to those attachments and actually kind of have some roots? I think it is. I think the, the modern white collar worker in a city um, or a suburb is incredibly transient. I mean, like they're very, they, their roots are incredibly shallow um, in a particular area. And that's, yeah. So, so I think, I think that in many cases, the, the, the explosion of remote work availability opened people's minds up to the possibility that you can actually situate yourself in a community that's not dictated by, you know, where must I live in order to work the job that I work? Right. That was the defining decision metric for people uh, for for the last 50 or 60 years in a lot of ways. Like, you know, if you and, and even in big cities, you actually see this. There's sort of different neighborhoods that are designed to serve workers who work in different parts of the city. And so um, in Houston, for example, there's like the there's the neighborhood where all the petroleum engineers live and there's the neighborhood where the bankers and lawyers live and the doctors and there's the neighborhood where the teachers live. And and um, 
a lot of those people even work in slightly different corridors and, you know, they have different ways they get to work and everything. You certainly see this in DC, right? You've got like a, you've got your Northern Virginia work crowd and then you've got your Hill work crowd. And, you know, there's, there's so, so, and then the neighborhoods actually get kind of sorted in a really granular way where, you know, you're, you're likely to be around workers who work a similar job to you and work in a similar part of town, make about the same income you do very granular sorting, but all of that is, you know, those connections are often just very transient, you know, white collar workers are working a lot harder than they have in the past. And so they're, they're because of that, um, they're less likely to be heavily involved in sort of, you know, civic stuff, neighborhood associations, all of that. Um, you know, the, so, and, and even with stuff with their, if they have kids, the stuff with their kids is likely to be highly outsourced. So they've, it's more of like an amenity than like a community they're actually plugged into. And so, yeah, remote work, um, when that became an option, I think people started to think a little bit more about higher things that you can achieve with where you live than merely just being close to your job in a trendy neighborhood. Like you can, maybe you can live in a place where you put down roots and where you create a legacy that you could like, I mean, it's a beautiful idea to have um, land and plant trees that you can like pass on to your children, right? Like, mm. and create like intergenerational memories and connection and roots. I, I think there's just, look, not everybody in the country wants it, but there's a lot of people that do and in increasingly so. And so, yeah, you know, I, I think that we have this opportunity where a lot of people want that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's a lot of towns in this country that could really benefit from uh, new people moving in, um, revitalizing them. And, you know, you mentioned this Pacific Northwest town, the, 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 the main playbook for how revitalization has happened. I mean, really the biggest playbook is what um, LGBT people did in cities in the nineties, where they gentrified little neighborhoods that used to be distressed. And then they would sort of they they would operate as kind of a tight knit you know minority group. They'd go in, they'd buy up property, um, and they they they'd renovate it and beautify it. Of course, schools didn't matter as much to them, so that, so they could go into districts that didn't have great schools, um, and that made them you know that like they made a lot of money in that whole play, yeah. and uh, you know and then similarly like small towns on the Pacific Northwest, a lot of those. Um, you know, I, I would say they're they're done oftentimes in a way that's very appealing uh, and inviting to, you know, kind of people with West Coast values uh, from the cities. So, you know, in, in Appalachia, I think of um, Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a small town that um, has been uh, gentrified significantly. But along with that has come the rainbow flag and the pronoun brigades. Yep. And yeah. so, so what I think, what I think is unique here is an opportunity to go, uh, go work with these towns, bring people out in a way that actually um, honors and stewards the tradition that these towns have. No, doesn't rather than you know destroying it and bulldozing it with a hostile outside set of values. Yeah. What's the status of your projects right now? Yeah, and where so, are they? Uh, Tell, make sure people know where 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 you are totally. doing this presently. Totally. So we currently have one operating company called Ridge Runner. It's at RidgeRunnerUSA.com. 
it's doing projects in Southern Kentucky. Uh, that was our first foray uh, into doing this work very intentionally. Southern Kentucky was picked because um, unlike Tennessee and some other states, Kentucky saw a very modest uh, value growth over the last four years. You know, other states went crazy. Tennessee doubled or tripled in value. Um, Kentucky saw much more modest growth. So we thought we really, really liked the relative affordability in Kentucky. Um, it used to be that Kentucky and Tennessee prices were about the same, or maybe Kentucky was even a little bit more pricey than Tennessee. Um, but that sort of flipped over the last four years. And so, you know, we thought there was a good opportunity there for, you know, to deliver good value to buyers. Um, Kentucky is also a very beautiful state. Um, people have a Southern drawl in Kentucky, but it also has a little bit of a Midwestern ethos. So it's a lot of heavy agriculture, very well-maintained farms. Parts of it kind of look like Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, you know, like we're Amish country, just rolling hills, very well, well-tended fields. Yeah. I, know, I do Kentucky. love yeah. Kentucky. Yes. It's so, so, and, and, you know, so, so we went in there and so we've got, we've got two projects. One is on the Cumberland river and uh, this is just, it's actually the best fishing east of the best trout fishing east of the Mississippi. And it's a, it's a fast flowing clean river in this part of the country. And you can, um, the cool thing about that is you can build a house with a deck where you can just drop a line in the river um, or you could put a boat in the river there and you could sail all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico from yeah. from your backyard. Um, so it's it's a really cool combination of things and very, very affordable. Um, one acre there is yeah. forty five thousand for riverfront property. So it's it's you know, there's not many parts of the country where you can you're selling you can parcels, not homes. Are you actually developing anything or are you just selling parcels to people and letting them build what they want? Yeah, we're letting people build what they want. A lot of people have their own ideas, but we're we're going ahead and sort of solving some of the logistical challenges like utilities. And, you know, one sure. thing that we do is because we're selling to remote workers, we make sure there's fiber optics everywhere. And um, so we pay to bring that out, work with, you know, local utility companies and everything. Um, we want to make sure that people, we want to make sure it's feasible for a remote worker to yeah. to live at our sites. And so so we do that. That's our that's our first project. Um, it's going really well. There's been very strong demand, um, you know, and and we're seeing the the thesis is being validated, right? I mean, we're we're seeing remote workers uh, coming in. A, a lot of them. I mean, it's really gratifying, but a lot of them just have this strong desire to come assimilate to the culture. They they really don't want to be disruptive. They want to. You know, they want to ask, hey, what are some local businesses I can patronize? How do I, you know, how do I fit in? How do I plug in? And so I, I love seeing that. Um, but uh, we've got a much bigger one on the horizon. So we're, we're looking now at doing a related project down in Tennessee that's going to be much broader in scale where we're, um, we've raised a lot of money for it and uh still raising some more and getting properties under contract. So I can't announce where it is yet, but this one's yeah. going to be bigger because we're, we're um, buying both a lot of acreage and buying uh, commercial buildings. So we, we're going to have um, a you know meaningful presence in a downtown, in a small town, and we're going to be renovating old buildings, um, recruiting tenants, 
Um, and at the same time, we'll be developing land uh, and, and marketing it in the same way that we've discussed, right? Yeah, that, I mean, and that sounds really exciting to kind of renovate something that needs renovation. And in, in, in especially when you talk about small towns, I do have a, a soft spot in my heart for small towns that have been abandoned. And, you know, just the idea that you can bring economic development back and what that does for people locally is a big deal. But Josh, this is not primarily a real estate show, although I like real estate <laughs> and you like real estate. But I want to kind of come full circle a little bit if we can. Because there's going to be a lot of people interested in this conversation. Like, yeah, that's kind of exciting. I, you know, I live in New Jersey or I live in, you know, California. And yeah, this is not, you know, there's a lot going on into that. But theologically speaking, and and I, what what's the um, what's the difference between um, you know escaping the place that God has planted us because you're just frustrated and you want things to be easier, or knowing that actually God is kind of moving me, that this place has become maybe uh, hostile to my children. It's not a good, safe place for them. The The condition of their soul is being threatened by virtue of being here. Um, how do you know? How do you counsel people? At, I mean, because really, we, I mean, as Christians, our, our job is not to just run to safety and comfort and ease for sure. And we need to know where God has us. If we are someone, and we know that at least tens of millions of Americans and maybe hundreds of a million, millions of Americans are at this point right now where they're like, I don't know what the next 30, 40, 50 years is for me and my family. How do you advise that analysis of, okay, I'm going to leave my suburb. I'm going to go someplace small because it sounds idyllic. And I want to be like people, be with people who are more like me or no, this is where God has me. I need to be a, a missionary in Babylon because we need missionaries in Babylon. Yeah. Well, you said something right at the front end that I think is really key, which is, um, do, do, should I leave where God has planted me? And I, I would say, you you know, the first question you should ask is, has God planted me here? And and, and by, by planted, I don't mean like, oh, I just happened to come here out of convenience because I have a job here. You know, um, you need to you need to actually you should be planted wherever you live. If you're going to live in a place, that means you need to be. I, I think you really do need to try to be thinking about: Am I committed to this place? Do 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 I have a future here? Am I am I acting as if I'm going to be here for the rest of my life? If you have that mentality, that changes your behavior. You're going to get involved civically. You're going to want to build institutions. You're 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 going to want to leave a legacy. Um, I would say that a lot of Christians don't have that mentality about where they live. And so, you know, it, the, I, I, you know, fundamentally, you know, it, a big portion of our churches are living in suburbs or cities and they don't, they're not, they're not meaningfully planted where they are. Okay. Now, you know, then, then you come to the question of, you know, is this place a place that's good for me to be planted? And, you know, that's going to vary for people. I'm not, I'm not, uh, do not hear me to be advocating that all Christians should, you know, leave cities. Um, I think cities are more difficult, um, you know, so I do think, I, I think that, um, you know, it's not a call that everybody has. Um, and I think Christians really need to think harder about, like, am I being fully faithful, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, 
like if you work at um, a mainstream law firm or investment bank, you know, you may not be I, I, working at a place like that doesn't require you to sin necessarily. Right. Like it's not like you, you know, but but something is happening when you work there. And it, it's really like there's a lot of things that you can't do when you work there. You give up a lot of freedom and increase you're increasingly giving up more freedom. You know, like I realized this when I was in law school um, in 2012, that was the year that Brandon Ike got fired from Mozilla Firefox, the company that he founded, because somebody found out that he had given like $1,000 to the Proposition 8 campaign in California for traditional marriage. Right. And me and every other social conservative, when that happened, we looked around and we said, well, this is the deal. Like, we're all going to, we're all going to go into big corporate law firms. And we heard that message loud and clear. Like, you better... You better be quiet, better not even give money yeah. to political things you care about. Um, you know, a lot of the best and brightest in Christianity have put themselves in those conditions. And when they do that over years and years and years, you habituate silence on issues that really matter. You you can't you can't speak publicly, you hide your views or you know, soft pedal them. And you're you're you never exercise the muscle of defending the morality of Christian belief in public. And like a lot of our best guys are doing that. And it's not just that it's not like the effect is just cabined to the way that they act, because if that's like some of your best and brightest young Christian uh, folks that are doing that, well, then, you know, what happens when they're on a board of a Christian school or, you know, or they're, they're like an elder or they're, they're somehow in lay leadership in their church, they're going to bring severe headline risk aversion to the institutions that they touch. Yeah. So and, that and sounds so like that's part of your, is that part of your story where you feel like you had to actually make the change to become who God yeah. wanted you to be because you felt, yeah. you know, stuck? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Look, I mean, I got to a point where I, th you know, I mean, just watching what's going on in this country, um, I, you know, I could not, you know, I couldn't say publicly or or do, you know, do what I thought was was needed for the future of this country, for my kids' future, um, with the professional commitments I had. So I had to change those commitments. Um, so 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 I'm saying, I guess what I would say to people is. You know, we need a lot more young Christians with godly ambition who want to build institutions, learn how to become civic leaders meaningfully, like, you know, run for city council. Can you do that in downtown Dallas as a conservative Christian? Probably not. So, you know, you need to think about that stuff. You need to think about putting yourself in a place where you can start exercising civic and cultural leadership and for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people, that means you're going to have to move. Um, you know, now, now, like, you know, I don't, this is not, this is not calling for an escape. This is calling for, um, this is calling for, for Christians though, to, to gather and collaborate um, in building meaningful institutions and meaningfully engaging civically. And, and yes, part of that is a realistic assessment that you're not going to be able to engage meaningfully civically everywhere. Um, you know, I think that's a really important distinction there because I think the, 
I'm sure the criticism that you've heard, and I think one thing that many people, even inside the church, will instinctively think when they hear about this development, this opportunity to move to rural Kentucky is you're just running away as you're just trying to escape and protect me and mine. But the framing that you're giving, providing here is where can we actually build institutions in places that will be healthy and productive and generationally impactful for the kingdom. And that is a totally different analysis. And maybe if you're stuck, like I was in Seattle, I mean, that's a hard place to like have a big impact. Now I still want Christians in Seattle, but what you are, what you are proposing here is not a escape San Francisco, escape New York, escape Dallas, escape Seattle and go to the country and hide. But Hey, if, if you want to build something, if you feel like God wants you to do that with your family and build something that your kids can take over and see an example of civic cultural leadership institution building, maybe there's a place you have to be in order to do that. That is a very different way of looking at this proposition, I think. Yeah, no, you, you know, you hit it out of the park. That's exactly, that's exactly the plan. And, and, um, you know, I like, I'm not, you know, as I said, I, I don't, I don't want to be a, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, sort of run to the hills fundamentalist who's telling every Christian they need to, you know, they need to get out immediately. And, you know, if they're not there in sin, that's not, that's not the point of this at all. The real point is we need a lot more Christians building institutions and practicing civic leadership, practicing what it looks like to create a legacy that they can hand off. And, you know, that's the other thing, like we're not building compounds, um, People who are joining this, there are going to be there are going to be a lot of non Christians who are attracted to these real estate projects and move in, and that's great. They're welcome. Like if they like the overall um, feel and vibe of the community, that's awesome. And they're going to be like incredibly receptive to the gospel too from from living next to their neighbors. And you know, and and like let's not forget too, like you know, there are there are lots of people in rural America who are culturally Christian, but they still need the gospel too. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly not, I think a trade-off in terms of evangelistic opportunity. I think if anything, there's, there's more evangelistic opportunity in some ways. Um, you know, I mean, there's challenges in a city with evangelizing, right. As you know, well, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of targets, but, you know, finding optimal ways to, to speak to them and, and actually get a, you know, get a hearing is very challenging. And so, you know, I, I, you know, I think that we've, we've somewhat despised um, a mission field, which is rural America. Um, and, you know, that's another, that's another component that I think Christians should consider when they think about this, this sort of thing. Like the, the Bible Belt needs the gospel too. And in a lot of ways, it's a very ripe field because people do have the cultural Christianity. Um but you know, so they've got some of that background. They've heard the Bible, um, and they're you know, in many cases, they are you know, ripe for the harvest. Yeah, that's a really kind of refreshing, different way of thinking about all this. And and I, I know you're not, and I'm not here to tell somebody you have to move. Um, I've lived in blue states. I've lived in red states now. Um, God is at work everywhere, and we want God to be at work everywhere. Um, but, uh, you know, as we 
try to discern the times that we live in and what God God's role for us to do. I mean, in these times, it's, it's just I, the opportunity that you're providing for people, I think is exciting to a lot of folks. And I know that people are going to listen to this and say, yeah, that speaks to me. Um, maybe that is just confirmation that, uh, you know, what God's purpose for my life is can't happen here. So maybe I need to relocate. I mean, what is the story of the Bible, if not constant relocation for kingdom purposes, right? <laughs> I mean, there are people who stayed in places, but uh, I mean, it's all a journey. And, and the reality is, as a guy who's moved now a couple of times in my life from a place where I was very deeply rooted and, and, and still consider home, it's like, it's recognizing that life on this planet, this life on this planet is all a deployment for the kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. the, the stability that we ultimately all want in life uh, doesn't happen here because nothing in this life is permanent. When we get to heaven, we are going to have, you know, I'm going to have hammocks and lakes and kayaks and permanence. And I really am looking forward to that. But right now we're on an assignment, we're on a mission. And uh, it's just a, the task of finding out what God's assignment for me is, what his mission for me is, and making sure those things are aligned and we're on mission. So Josh, give us the website one more time. Really grateful for your time. If people want to go get more information. Totally. Yeah. So it's ridgerunnerusa.com. Uh, you can, you can reach out there. We've got the two projects in Kentucky, but as I said, we've also got a lot of exciting forthcoming projects. They'll be announced later this year. Um, but if you reach out, you know, we'll, we'll have your, We'll, we'll have your email and, and you can get updates on the status of that, um, including when we're ready to announce publicly. So, um, yeah, welcome. Welcome all of that. And I would say, too, like I'm very when people reach out and they have some particular ideas about, oh, I want to build this business here or I want to, you know, they want to get involved in something like that. Um, I'm very eager to hear from people who have entrepreneurial energy and ideas for how they can plug in because, um, you know, I, I try to facilitate, you know, that that's exactly the mindset that sort of pioneering mindset. I'm not looking for everything to be built for me. I'm going to, I want to come and build something myself and, and contribute. That's the mindset that, that we're seeing every day and, and we love it. So always love hearing outreach from people like that. Well, I know that you will be hearing from people and I frankly look forward to um, hearing how these projects go because these are innovative and also inspiring. And I'm just excited to see it as, as God is at work in the world, how this all looks. Josh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And friends, we thank you for joining our conversation. Share with a friend who might be uh, in this season of their life and trying to figure out what's going on. And I hope this has helped us uh, think through just the, the purposes that God has for us and our families and in, uh, in, in the world that we live in. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe because the algorithms are changing. And if you don't, you're not going to get the next episode, which will be released on the next Tuesday or Friday, because that's when we release them. It's really great to have you with us. If you've had any questions, comments, concerns, you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email me outstanding at washingtonstand.com. Love hearing from you. Uh, and I will look forward to the next conversation because it promises to be outstanding as well. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.